Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. This is Alan Smith. And this is Sam Dingman. For the first time ever, I get to say, let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I feel so weird. This is all, it's all wrong. Everything's all screwy in Hootenanny Studios for episode 87 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like your 2014 Baltimore Orioles, has had an uncharacteristically active offseason, which in no way guarantees a productive regular season. It does not seem to guarantee that. Our attempts at acquiring a low-cost, high-upside free agent intern have proved fruitless, (laughs) and so we'll be forced to rely on our aging core to shoulder the entire workload here at Hootenanny Studios. But my my shoulder is kind of kind of hurting here, Sam. I'm I, not sure. I can't hear that right now, Smith. <laughs> I, I need to lean on you hard here for the next one six two. Morale remains high in the clubhouse. However, we won't comment on reports that said conviviality can be attributed to the use of performance enhancing beverages. <laughs> Such conduct would, of course, fall well short of the standards of conduct of the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we are a proud member along with our various sister-wife podcasts. Our show tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is stuffed chock-full of more incentives than David Ortiz's latest contract extension. (laughs) We'll begin, as we always do, with our most popular recurring segment, the Davy Cruz Franchise Report. When the Baltimoreans were challenged a couple episodes ago by our guest Mac Montandon to name an Oriole shortstop of recent vintage who could neither hit or field, we were stumped. Thankfully... The Oriole Spastics, one of our fine aforementioned sister wives, swooped in to remind us of Davy's anemic performance with both bat and glove, which is why we pause each week to pay tribute to his legacy. We'll also take a phone call from our dear friend Ben Camp, who loves Alan and me but hates baseball, a situation which has created a bit of a moral quandary for him, <laughs> which we'll attempt to solve by making him like baseball. We've also got a brand new 7th inning sketch for you, which will be the first installment of the Baltimoreans Culture Corner, wherein we tell you about some really great baseball-themed novels you may not have heard of. Now, folks, I, I think we all recognize that we live in an uncertain world, rife with misdirection and a seemingly unstemmable tide of useless information. Each week, before we take to the microphones here at Hootenanny Studios, I find myself gripped with a fear rivaled only by the terror I feel every time Matt Wieters steps to the plate from the left side with runners in scoring position. A fear, ladies and gentlemen, that nothing we're about to record is going to make any damned sense. It is in those moments, my friends, that I am most grateful for the brilliance of my esteemed co-host Alan Smith, who so reliably provides the proper cultural context for our all-weather fandom. Here he is with his thoughts on the number 87. Here is a thing that you cannot deny, Baltimoreans. It is perfect that episode 87, falling as it does at the end of a tumultuous off-season of highs, lows, consternation, fraternity, and eventually, yes, even hope, is perfectly aligned with the fact that four score and seven years passed between the signing of the Declaration and the Battle of Gettysburg. 
For those of you who are, like Sam, mathematically challenged, a score is 20, 4 score is therefore 80, and 4 score in 7 is... you get the idea. Anyway, the comparison is, I feel, emotionally apt. Can you not see our spiritual leader, and here I refer to our regular guest on the show, Dan Duquette, obviously, holding forth in much the same way as Lincoln did about a union that he has dedicated his heart and soul to keeping together? Even at the darkest moment, which for us was before the 2012 season, where it seemed that all hope was lost and the Orioles were sure to crumble, well, we did something, Sam. We created this podcast. And maybe it was because we believed, as so many other fans have believed before, that it was going to be this year, maybe this year would be different, that we'd capture that magic that we'd seen in other people watching other teams Imagine for a moment, Baltimoreans, imagine with me, Dan Duquette, on a blustery April morning, standing at home plate at Camden Yards and addressing Baltimoreans faithful. <laughs> Four score and seven episodes ago, we brought forth on this sport a new podcast conceived in Orioles but dedicated to the proposition that all baseball seasons are created equal. Now we are engaged in another great season, testing whether that podcast, or any podcast so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are poised on the great 162-game battlefield of this season, and we've come today to dedicate a portion of this season as a final resting place for those fans past who here gave their time, care, effort, and passion that this podcast and others like it might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, armed with tickets, binoculars, and score sheets, who breathlessly hoped here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say on this podcast, but it can never forget what they did in Camden Yards and in parks around this country. It is for us, the hopeful, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who hoped in the past have thus far so nobly advanced. It is for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored fans we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these who hope shall not have hoped in vain, that this podcast, under God, shall have a new birth of faith, and that the cry of maybe next year, from all the people, from all weather people, shall not perish from the earth. Beautiful. Just beautiful. I think it's also appropriate here to mention 87 is the number of vampires that Abe Lincoln kills on screen in his most recent biopic, and that 87 is the number of years it was thought that no photographs of Abraham Lincoln in an open coffin existed. Until, in 1952, a 14-year-old named Ronald Rettveld discovered one hidden away in the Illinois State Historical Library while researching the papers of Lincoln's personal secretaries, and allegedly put to rest a series of Elvis-type conspiracy theories about Honest Abe still being alive and, having saved the Union, 
dedicated himself going forward to a life of masked crime fighting. That last bit is true. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Davy Cruz Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking ranging from strikeout to home run. First up on the report this week, Baseball Prospectus recently launched this year's edition of the Playoff Odds Calculator, which uses their trademarked Pecota prediction algorithm to project the final standings for each division. The calculator adjusts to the actual results of the regular season in real time, but its initial reading of the Orioles, as they currently stack up on paper against the other teams in the AL East, is not pretty. Pecota predicts a fifth-place finish for the Orioles with a record of 78 wins against 84 losses. Alan Smith, your thoughts? Is that enough total wins? <laughs> uh, I, I hate to do this to you because a moment ago you accused me of being bad at math. <laughs> But yes, it is. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I will give this a strikeout. Okay. Um, but it's one of those, like, Nolan Reimold strikeouts where he swings through something and then, like, you see the hitch in his giddy-up as he walks back to the, the dugout and you know in your heart that that's the last you're going to see of him that season. <laughs> oh, God. Because I, I just feel like these ratings will be gone in a week. Mm. We're not going to have to see them again. And much like everything in the sport punditry world, no one will be held responsible for being wildly, wildly wrong. <laughs> I mean, much like every single political pundit out there, you know, pontificates, say, about the fact that the uh, the flight, the Malaysian flight was taken by aliens or was sucked into a black hole um, or any other of the more ridiculous things that people said over the last week, that is now going to disappear quietly into the wind, and no one will hold them accountable for saying ridiculous and stupid things on air and then eventually uh, you know, being proven wrong and not have to issue any kind of retraction or complaint or anything like that. So my question then is, are you happy that people do it anyway? Like, are you happy that this prediction algorithm exists and that it's applied to the season before it starts and then adjusted in real time? Do you like the wild amount of prognostication that occurs in the run-up to the season? I'm fine with it. I just think it's white noise. Okay. I mean, I think but that... But it doesn't, uh, like, annoy you. You you don't... It doesn't offend you that it exists. I think it offends me only in the fact that there is no consequence for being incorrect. These people should be punished. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think that there is a certain amount... Let me preface this by saying that we called last year, uh, if I believe this, but if I believe correctly, we suggested that the eventual world champion Red Sox would end up in fourth place, being also ran and disappear after the second month. So I'm not here to suggest that I have any closer uh, take on the prognostication or any more uh, accuracy in my claims. We also suggested trading Chris Davis to those same Red Sox <laughs> while his value was, quote, at its peak. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, uh, we are idiots. But and we should I, be punished. <laughs> no, but my point is that I don't think that anyone, uh, you know, I don't think we are making any claims to veracity or uh, hard news here on this show. If we've ever claimed Speak that, for yourself, sir, I apologize. <laughs> and if that's why you're tuning in, Baltimoreans, I, I sincerely, I sincerely apologize. But 
Um, I do think that the, the the sort of baseball prospectus folk are have their hackles up about not being taken seriously. They believe that they are are operating under hard science, and they believe that they are putting forward something that is of worth and of merit into the world, which is fine. But when they're incorrect, they should therefore have some sort of consequence toward that action and should be therefore judged accordingly. You're saying they haven't realized the the Nightvalian truth <laughs> that that we have come to understand, which is that all of us feel we are putting something of of worth and value into the world when in fact existence is a pointless farce. Indeed, and uh, predictions doubly so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to call this a 28 home run season by Joe Maurer, uh, which is to say it's deceptive, just like the 2009 season when Joe Maurer hit 28 home runs, causing us all to think that he had become this power hitter that we never knew that he was. That's not what happened in 2009. Um it, all that happened is that he was the same kind of line drive hitter to all fields that he's always been, but because of the vagaries of chance, wind, the cosmic narrative, <laughs> some of the fly balls that don't usually clear the fence when he hit them when he hits them did in 2009. The baseline reality of his ability had not changed and has not changed. So as we look at this Pakota projection for the American League East, What's interesting to me isn't so much the order of the teams. Uh -huh. It's the tiny margin of separation between them. Huh. Because if you look very closely at it, Baseball Prospectus thinks the Orioles are going to go 78 and 84. But it thinks the Rays are going to eke out a first place finish with a record of 87 and 75, which is good for a winning percentage of just 536. That is a difference of only nine games in the loss column. It's only one game better than the 2013 Orioles were. And moreover, the last time anyone made the postseason with a winning percentage that low is 2008, when the Dodgers finished six games over 500, and that was in the notoriously anemic American League West. So what I'm saying is, this projection is not telling us that the Orioles are going to be bad, so much as it's telling us that the American League East, newsflash, is going to be real tough this year. And we knew that already. Sure. Sure. So you're so you're taking some hope from the fact that uh, in the in the Maurer season, uh, a few bouncing balls, so to speak, a few a few um, changes from the norm were enough to make him appear to be the power hitter that he wasn't. Does that mean that a few changes, a few lucky breaks, make get us into the playoffs despite these 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 uh, ratings? Well, a lot of people would argue that a few lucky breaks got us into the playoffs in 2012. And they did. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is that uh, I think on paper, it's very fair to say that the Rays have a measurable advantage over us. Their starting pitching is unequivocally better than our own. I think it's fair to say even maybe that the Yankees do, assuming all potentially positive trends go positive for them however what this is also saying is that the worst team in the american league east us in this case is only going to be nine games under 500 right as opposed to you know the american league west where the astros are probably going to lose 110 games again um and so all that really means is that each of these teams is essentially grouped around roughly the same talent level and until somebody gets hurt or gets divorced and brings it into the clubhouse or whatever happens, basically, 
uh, we're looking at the best division in baseball with no team seeming to have any particularly potent weakness. Item number two on the franchise report this week. Steve Pride of Pigtown Clevenger seems to uh, have made his mark. He is heading north and will be a member of the Baltimore Orioles to begin the season. Sam, what's your rating on uh, on Clevenger joining Team Steve? This is a three-run home run off the bat of fellow Team Steve member Steve Tollison. Oh, really? <laughs> off of Cliff Lee, uh, which is to say it's great, uh, and it, it's great for reasons beyond the feel-good factor, <laughs> which is is also just absolutely fantastic, and I'd rather have Baltimore native Steve Clevenger on our team than I would Baltimore native Gavin Floyd. <laughs> and a, uh, a rock in your cleat to you, sir. And Baltimore area native Mark Teixeira, a, a cockroach in your green tea to you, sir. Having administered those devastating put-downs, I shall now move on to my point, which is... Um, I'm very excited about Ubaldo Jimenez. I'm very excited about Nelson Cruz. I'm very excited about Ryan Webb. But what I think is really important to remember is, and we've talked about this before on the program, is that Steve Clevenger, Steve Lombardozzi, just to stick with this Team Steve vibe here, Evan Meek, uh, the now-departed Alex Gonzalez, who we turned into Steve Lombardozzi, these are the kind of Dan Duquette trademark pickups that have turned the franchise. Now, I won't say that have turned the franchise around, but that have enabled the franchise to kind of bend with the uncertain winds of the last two seasons. The organizational depth that uh, has enabled us to not be decimated by injuries or slumps over the last two years. Um, and have allowed us to protect our very strong core more effectively than we've been able to in the past. And so Clevenger making the team, trading for Lombardozzi, those are just a reminder that Dan Duquette isn't forgetting about that part of his approach, even as he flexes his apparent newfound financial might. I'm going to give this a RBI single, um, which which is an RBI because... Uh, Steve Lombardozzi and Ryan Flaherty are both already on base because of hitting singles before them. Organizational depth is important. I love having someone like Clevenger, who clearly really wants to be there, was hitting the cover off the ball when we got to see him down in spring training and has continued to do that. And as part of sort of this group of folks who, uh, like we keep on saying, isn't necessarily Major League starters, but are able to... um, fill in admirably for those sort of once or twice a week roles where they are needed and and keep the rest of the Orioles feeling fresh. And if someone does go down for the 15-day stint on the disabled list, step into that role. So I don't think it's a major thing, but I think it is a single in a series of singles that really, I think, advances the team. And I think one of the things that all of your damn projections don't take into effect is how much the Orioles last year got tired. Um, and how much I hope this year that we're not going to have the same problem of feeling like you got to roll Adam Jones out there every day. You got to have Manny Machado out there or the whole team falls apart. I feel like we're a, we're a deeper team. Item number three 
on this week's Davy Cruz Franchise Report, Dan Snyder has announced the creation of the Washington Redskins Original Americans Foundation. Snyder says the formation of the foundation, boy, that's hard to say, (laughs) comes in the wake of visits to 26 Indian reservations in 20 states, where he learned that the Native American community needs, quote, action, not words. Smith, your, your head is in your hands. As I read these words to you, tell me your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to give this a ranking of um, arguing a call and getting tossed from the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> arguing someone who is clearly out uh, and, and despite all physical evidence to the contrary being rung by a very correct and deserving umpire. Uh, I think this is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> um, the, this is the equivalent of t- telling someone that, yes, you happen to have slept with your neighbor's wife, but you did put a particularly crisp $20 bill in the collection plate at church when it went by, and therefore everything is okay. You can't buy your way out of sins. We did away with that with the Catholic Church of the twenty like 1200s. What are you doing, dude? What are you doing? This is a ridiculous thing. And in fact, when you continue to read this article, Dan Snyder, obviously, easy punching bag, easy target, because the man is an idiot. But he he does appear to be all that is wrong with, like, the rich in this country. Like, what a ridiculous thing to say. Everything is okay because I gave 3,000 coats to some people on an Indian reservation? You're insane, and you're delusional, and 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 it's completely illogical, and 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 I mean, it goes beyond offensive. It's just it's just moronic. Needless to say, I agree with you completely. <laughs> uh, I am I am going to assign this a ranking of Cole Hamill's throwing at Bryce Harper, um, because uh, Hamill's, uh, if anybody remembers, Hamill's excuse for doing that at the time was basically, well. Bryce Harper plays the game in a way that we didn't when I was coming up. So I felt a need to remind him of the fact that it hasn't (laughs) always been this way. Uh, And to me, this is indicative of what Dan Snyder is doing, which is is so defiantly standing on the wrong side of history. (laughs) I mean, let's let's forget the fact that he he says what the native american community needs is action not words the action that he should be taking <laughs> is changing the word redskin from the name of the football team i guess the the real question i would like to ask of dan snyder in this scenario is dude are, are you concerned that changing the name of the team is going to make people like you less cuz that's not possible <laughs> or the team worse also not possible. You are already the most reviled owner of one of the most terrible football teams in the National Football League. What is it that you think that changing this name is going to do to to worsen that situation or to deepen that hole? I await your answer. Baltimoreonspodcast at gmail.com. Or just tweet it to us at bmorehunts. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's Davy Cruz Franchise Report, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for a conversation that's pretty one-sided. You'll see why. With our friend, Ben Camp.
Well, last week, as everyone who listened to our In the Car episode knows, Sam and I got to go to spring training. And we told everybody about it. We have gotten a whole slew of reactions. Some people are green with envy. Others are happy that we got to dabble in a baseball-intensive situation. But there are always a few friends and morons. You know who we're talking about. There's always just a few friends who just don't get it. Hello, gentlemen and morons. This is Benjamin Camp uh, calling in to ask some questions about baseball. I want to be a big fan of your show, and I've tried listening to it a couple of times, but unfortunately it uh, it persists somewhat vehemently in being about baseball, which uh, is uh, not, you know, not very interesting. So there's that. So here, here's my questions about about baseball. I'm, so, so I, I would love to get more into baseball. I recently got a little more into football. It was fun. I kind of connected with my dad. It was, it was good. It was a family thing. Um, but I don't have that around baseball. So I guess I would ask you this, my friends: Why, why baseball? I actually thought about this a lot uh, over the week of spring training, and Sam and I were talking about it both uh, with each other and with the spastics who we were hanging out with, I think for myself, I find that baseball is the only time in my life when I can stop the constant list of things that I have going on in the back of my brain. And I, you know, I'm one of those folks who always has too many things on my plate. I'm always overscheduled. And uh, I always sort of have a guilt complex about all the things that I'm not doing. Whatever I am doing isn't enough, and there are always a series of things that need to get done, and, and why am I not doing them, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, that list is, is an ever-present thing for me, and it's always around all of the time. For whatever reason, though, um, when I sit and watch baseball, the volume on that voice in my head gets turned way down. And you know, I know that Ben has talked about something uh, uh, that, for him— he finds that video games fill a very similar role in his in his life that uh, for whatever reason he can play an hour of video games a night and that period of time is a time of relaxation and sort of brain offness when he's not sort of f- working on and worrying about the other stuff that's happening in his day. That's baseball for me. No matter how long my list is, no matter what else is going on, that little piece of volume gets turned way down and I'm able to sit and enjoy and be present in the moment without feeling like I should be doing something else. See, I think I think that's a really nice answer, Alan, because I think what it does is it gets at uh, it gets at a problem that I think is inherent a lot of times in the question when people ask, "Why should I love baseball?" Because I think the question they think they're asking is, "How do I get to a point where I get the kind of exhilarated rush of sporting um, kind of?" fever that I get from other sports. And that's the wrong question. The The right question is, what is the value that baseball could have in my life? And I think that's exactly what you've answered. It's not that baseball can be what football is for you. It, it That's not the answer. The answer is that baseball, more so than any other sport, can can fill your mind with all of its wonderful complexities and flavors and help you kind of turn down the signal on all of your concerns. Here's my next question. If I was only going to pay attention to one statistic, say, for example, 
I had no interest or time to pay attention to statistics. Which statistic would I want to look at to, to be more interested in the sport? Uh, well, people may make fun of me for this one um, because it's a fairly wonky statistic, but I think it's a wonky statistic that belies uh, something that's wonderfully simple about the game of baseball that we've talked about a large number of times on the show, and that statistic is park factor. Park factor is, without getting into too many of the details, because frankly, I don't understand them, but... <laughs> Park factor is basically a way of calculating a number that represents the effect of the physical space in which the baseball game is being played on the outcome of said game. Now, what I like about this, Ben Camp, is that it uh, it gets at something that, as I said, is, I think, wonderfully uh, simple yet profound about the game of baseball, which is that there are no rules governing the size of shape and construction of the field which is not the case in any other sport every single other sport is played on a on a field of fixed shape and dimension there is no variance whatsoever in that shape and dimension the only possible variable effect on what's happening on the field is the weather in baseball you have the weather which is why it's impossible to find a good pitcher in the entire state of Colorado because no matter how good a pitcher you are, when that ball gets swatted up into the thin air of the mile-high state, it's just going to get out of the park more quickly. So you've got your weather effect. But the other thing you have is such fields as the Oakland County Coliseum have a tremendous amount of foul territory. So that means that if you're watching a baseball game, uh, which you should do sometime, and you're seeing you're seeing batters hit a lot of pop fly foul balls in another stadium those pop fly foul balls would go into the stands and the at bat would continue at the Oakland County Coliseum those pop flies have a chance of being caught by a fielder and the thing about baseball games is that there are a finite number of outs so there's a difference in that single game moment of giving away one of your precious 27 outs versus having the at bat continue and possibly turn into a home run so that's a huge amount of effect that can be had on the course of a single game just based on the field that it's being played at. Uh, we speculated on a very old episode of Baltimoreans that one way that the Orioles might want to correct their horrible third base defense situation is by erecting a 500-foot wall in very short left field, making it so that balls hit to the left side would be pretty much guaranteed to not be hit as home runs because someone would have to hit an extreme pop fly to get it over that wall. But uh, it would also make it much easier for the third baseman because they could just let it hit off the wall and then pick it up after it rebounded. That's obviously an absurd suggestion from a strategic standpoint, but it would technically be allowed in Major League Baseball to tailor the size of your field to the particular abilities of your team. And in fact, there are a lot of teams that do that. Teams that are notoriously bad at offense tend to build stadiums with very deep home run fences so that their pitchers will be allowed will be able to thrive and uh, it will minimize the effect of their poor offenses. You can't do that in any other sport. And that, I think, contributes to the fact that baseball has this really powerful sense of home and place for people because 
place is such a huge part of the outcome of the game. All right, here's my next question. Um, what is the appeal of baseball on TV? I've been to a few uh, baseball games, Phillies games mostly, um, and they were fun. You know, we got got some food, got a couple of drinks, hung out with friends. I wasn't there by myself, but why would I want to watch it on TV? Well, okay, so... I take your point, Ben, uh, that, you know, I think that live games are great and that whenever possible you should make the uh, attempt to get out to the stadium. But I think that one of the reasons why it is fantastic to watch baseball on the TV is that you get a very um, intricate sense from watching people play of the incredible complexity that is baseball. Now, uh, you can always see in a football game or in, in a basketball game, you can sort of watch the flow of all the different things that are happening. But when you watch baseball on TV, you really get to see that it is a game of millimeters. And you get to see how much a pitch dropping just a little bit in the strike zone makes it impossible to hit. And you get to see how little tiny adjustments in where the second baseman is standing or where the shortstop is standing get to change the entire outcome of a play. And you get to see that because you can watch it on replay and because you can see by the way that the uh, that the camera frames the uh, strike zone and things like that. You really get to see the weird sort of nerdy intricacies of how all the game unfolds. And I think that you... Um, you, obviously, you miss that sort of thing when you watch the flow of a live baseball game because you don't have the perfect angle and you can't watch the perfect thing. And instead, you get to see more of like how the overall flow of the game develops. But I think that if you ever want to get into the how baseball is played and the really like, I mean, kind of amazing things that it takes to hit a 96 mile per hour fastball, the sort of amazing hand eye coordination and the sense of what a swing looks like that succeeds. You kind of have to watch it on TV because you get a real different sense from that of the specificity of how kind of physically amazing the game of baseball actually is. Uh, here's my my final question. Uh, is there any point in baseball at all if, if I don't have the time or interest to be following players? No. Uh, this gets at a, a larger thing that I feel about baseball, and, and I think I've felt for a long time but only recently figured out how to put into words – Baseball is a big, gradual, complex thing. And it's more gratif- you, you get more gratification from it the more time you invest in it. It's like reading a really brilliant novel. There are there is the main plot, there are there's a B plot, there's a C plot, there's an X plot. It it just goes down so many levels. And you know that in your favorite incredibly complex story, you enjoy the denouement of that story the most when you have appreciated every single thread of the plot that went into creating that moment. And if that's not your jam, you're not going to like baseball. And it's okay with me if there are things in life that have a real wonderful texture and richness that's only there for people who are willing to invest the time. I, I'm okay with it if those things aren't the most popular things in the world. Because part of what's nice about it is that you feel like you're having more of an experience because you've you've committed the time to really understand it. And I think that everybody has a thing like that for them, whether it's, as we've discussed, video games or baseball or cooking 
or knowing a lot about really fancy sports cars. That thing exists for everyone, but you have to, baseball demands that you appreciate it at that level. There aren't really a lot of lower levels to appreciate it at. I do want to clarify, I'm not anti-baseball. I'm, I'm pro people loving the things that they love. But baseball is not currently on that list for me. And so it's hard for me to understand people who are so into it. All right. Other than that, I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of Baltimoreon's Culture Corner, wherein Sam and I keep you abreast of the latest literary works of particular interest to the all-weather fan. First up this week, it's the sobering tale of a power-hitting prospect's gradual realization that the glory and ambition promised throughout his youth are no match for the realities of the big league battlefield. The novel chronicles the journey of a young German corner outfielder named Klaus Pounder, whose days of amateur and professional glory are characterized by seemingly limitless promise. As a 19-year-old, he sets the single-season record for home runs as a member of the Dortmund Wanderers of Germany's Bundesliga, prompting ringing chants by the Dortmund faithful of Raus aus Klaus Haus, or Get out of Klaus's house. The local media is awash with reports that Major League scouts will be lining up on his doorstep, but ultimately the only club to show any interest is the Seattle Mariners, whose general manager Klaus bitterly derides as a dwarf trottle. Still, even the Mariners' meager offer of $12,000 and a steaming cup of organic fair trade Emerald City blend is more promising than a career-rolling Gelbwurst in his father's sausage factory in the tiny village of Dinkelsbuhl. So Klaus sets out for the American West. Upon arriving at Safeco Field, he encounters grizzled Mariners hitting coach Stanislaus Batsinski, who cautions Pounder that the violent leg kick in his swing will be no match for American off-speed pitches. Klaus ignores his warning, convinced that his natural ability will propel him to success as it always has. Years pass, and the grim reality sets in. Pounder's once prodigious power evaporates with age, leaving him a brittle shell of a man who can barely muster the strength to swing his bat. Finally appearing in a late-season interleague matchup against the Padres as a pinch hitter for Felix Hernandez, Pounder tears his meniscus, running to first base following an unsuccessful bunt attempt. He's carried off the field in a stretcher, tears streaming down his stoic face as he dreams of the simple life he left behind all those years ago in Dinkelsbuhl. The next day's Seattle Times makes only fleeting mention of the incident, and indeed seems to make light of Klaus's plight, as the sports page leads with a phrase which also forms this heart-rending book's title, All Quiet on the Western Bunt. Also not to be missed is the epic love story featuring a young Jack Thomas Snow. Long before his days as a gold-glove first baseman for the California Angels and San Francisco Giants, Jack is a boy on the fictional San Pedro Island in the northern Puget Sound region. The plot revolves around a murder case in which Kabuyo Miyamoto, a Japanese-American, is accused of killing Carl Heine, a respected fisherman in the close-knit community. The trial, held in December 1954 during a snowstorm that grips the entire island, occurs in the midst of deep anti-Japanese sentiments following World War II. 
Notable players in the trial include Horace Whaley, the town corner, and Old Jurgensen, an elderly man who sells his strawberry field to Carl, which is contested in the trial. Young JT is oblivious to all of this, however, as he is too busy playing baseball at Los Alamotos High School with future major leaguer Rob Nen. Meanwhile, evidence is collected in support of the conclusion that Carl had climbed the boat's mast to cut down a lantern, been knocked from the mast by the freighter's wake, hit his head, and then fallen into the sea. Ultimately, the charges against Moyamoto are dismissed, as Jack is dismissed from his contract with the Boston Red Sox following his complaint that platooning with a young Kevin Euclid resulted in too little playing time. Somehow, somewhere in there, he also wins six gold gloves and manages to lead the league in sacrifice flies with 14. This emotionally potent tale is already in development for a film version starring Ethan Hawke as Jack and Jim Leland in the role of Ole, the elderly strawberry salesman. Available now wherever books are sold, don't miss... J.T. Snow falling on cedars. And last, but certainly not least, Baltimoreans recommends a sweeping tale of romance, architecture, and 86-mile-per-hour sliders. Set in a picturesque rural community in Iowa, a married but lonely Italian woman meets a man from Hickory, North Carolina, where he posted a 12-2 record, a .99 ERA, and led his team to the 2007 4A state championship. The baseball world is therefore shocked when he leaves what seems certain to be a prosperous major league career to travel to that picturesque rural community in Iowa and create a photo essay about covered overpasses. The woman, however, is all the reason he needs, and ultimately the town names itself after him for some reason. Chock full of passion, schematic drawings of archways, and the first left-handed pitcher chosen first by the San Francisco Giants in the amateur draft since Mike Remlinger in 1987, you'll swoon for the bridges of Madison Bumgarner County. That's it for this week's installment of Baltimoreans Culture Corner. We'll be back next week with our review of Moby Vic, Ter Martinez. Oh, you know what? Wait, wait just a second, Sam. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we actually do have one more thing here. Uh, this book jacket blurb is a little ripped and torn up, and I just found it here under the seat, cushions of Hootenanny Studios. Do you mind if I read this one last one as well? Oh, not at all. I, I can't believe we almost left one out. So, <clears throat> Science fiction fans are sure to love this tear-jerking chronicle of the baseball aspirations of a young Michael Almanzar. A sickly child whose thin, weak body cannot hope to deliver on his imagination, Almanzar finds himself on the outside of even the most basic Sandlot baseball games. Perpetually picked last, or not picked at all, he seeks refuge in the friendships of a strange crew of misfits, including the brooding Kitty Moscovich. When Kitty heads off to college, she begins to study science and turns her attention to the afflictions of young Michael. After a series of experiments conducted on a golden retriever named Pippin, give the animal the ability to play basketball at a level shocking to all who see it, Michael agrees to undergo Kitty's treatment as well. The treatment is a success, and the perpetually sunken-chested and asthmatic Almanzar finds himself starring in his college team and then drafted in the fifth round by the Boston Red Sox. As his athletic skill increases, however, he turns from the role of bullied to the role of bully, getting revenge on his former tormentors, but also distancing himself from his former friends and from Kitty herself. Now a five-tool threat, with power to both fields, Almanzar appears destined to become a regular all-star. That is, until Pippin's silky-smooth jumper deserts him. Soon the poor dog is not only unable to make three of five from the field, 
but has actually degraded to the point of being unable to chase a simple tennis ball. Michael and Kitty desperately search for a way to prolong the magical effects of the treatment, but eventually both are forced to watch the skills that allowed for a brief and tantalizing taste of big league stardom to begin to fade away. As his hand-eye coordination degenerates and the major league scouts one by one turn their back on him, Almanzar falls into a deep, deep depression. Unable to conceive of a return to his previous life, feeling the sting of rejection from his old friends who now won't accept him back, he heads off to try his luck in the Japanese leagues. The tragic conclusion, including the passing of Pippin the dog and Almanzar's final act of using his signing bonus to create a trust fund to have flowers placed on Pippin's grave in perpetuity, are not to be missed. So be sure to get to your copy of... Well, that's funny, Sam. The title appears to be missing. Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's rubbed out there on the book jacket. But I guess we're going to need your help, Baltimoreans. Hit us up. What was the missing title of that exorbitantly long book review? Our program is written and produced by Alan Smith and Sam Dingman with music by Marshall York, James Carter, Town Hall, Weather Report, and The Black Crows. Our splendid new website is bemorons.com and our iTunes are anxiously awaiting your reviews. So, Sam. Yes, sir. What do you call Henry Arudia when he squanders his prodigious height on the basketball court? Henry bounds are for suckers, Arudia. I think is is what that would be. And good night. Okay, bye-bye. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.